Okay, so Philippians 3, verses 1 to 11. Uh, Finally, my brothers and not sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness, of, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Oh, no. That I may know him... Oh, it's gone. <laughs> that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Uh, well, it's great that you could join us uh, for our third and final talk on Philippians. And particularly, if you are a visitor, uh, you've come on a great week because we're going to actually be thinking about what it is that Christians believe at the heart of their faith. Uh, so I hope that, particularly if you're a visitor, this will give you a good overview uh, of what it is that Christians are on about and what it is that they hold dear. But I want to start by asking you a question today. And that question is, who are you seeking approval from? Are you seeking approval uh, from your friends? Are you seeking approval from your cheer squad in life? You know, squad goals, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Are you seeking approval from your parents? Are you hoping that your family will give you approval? Are you seeking approval from your lecturers here at university? Are you seeking approval from society? Are you seeking approval from that special guy or girl? Are you seeking approval even from yourself? And whether we like it or not, all of us have an inbuilt need, a desire for approval or respect. And we feel the weight of other people's expectations on our shoulders as we go about our daily life. And we seek to spend our lives trying to find approval. Uh, whether those expectations come from our friends or our family, uh, you know, when, when your friends expect you to be there for them on a Friday night, or when your parents expect you to look after them in your old age, it could be that our uni lecturers expect us to hand in their assignments on time and we seek their approval and we feel disappointed when we don't get the mark that we thought we deserved. It could be that we seek approval for that one-line witty comment we put on Twitter or perhaps that amazing Instagram photo we took that no one seems to like. And when we look for approval, I think there's three main categories that we often seek approval from. Uh, the first category we need to think about is the category of other people. You see, from an early age, we learn to crave approval from other people. A famous child psychologist, Eric Erickson, outlined the eight stages that all of us go through in our journey of life. And the fourth stage that he describes that we all go through, often in primary school, is the search for competence. 
uh, where we learn to either be industrious in life or inferior in life. Uh, Where our school friends and our teachers, they either give us approval for our industrious efforts or they give us disapproval. And we learn that our achievements matter and that people will either like us or not like us depending on whether we meet their expectations or not. And so previously in life, kids used to get grades for, and it might sound strange, but for actually doing stuff. You know, if you actually got a good mark in your assignment, you'd get a grade and you may even get a sticker, okay? You used to get standardised objective expectations that were spelt out for you. But now we live in a world where you get a sticker just for showing up. (laughs) You don't believe me, but it's actually true. Uh, You see, last week on the Hamish and Andy show, uh, Hamish Blake, for those of you who know Hamish, uh, he was talking about his newborn son and how he took his newborn son to go and get a haircut from the hairdresser. And he noticed how it was very different from when he was a child. You see, now when you go to get a haircut, they put you in a little yellow car. They give you an iPad so you can watch TV as you're getting your haircut. And then at the end, they give you a certificate for having your haircut. <laughs> That's right, you can achieve the achievement. You can get approval for getting your haircut, even as a toddler. And yet that need for approval doesn't really go away, does it, once we leave primary school? You see, it just morphs and shifts from our teachers' stickers to our peers' approval in high school. And so we live controlled by whether people will reject us or whether they'll accept us. And we bend over backwards and we contort ourselves in all sorts of ways to try and meet other people's expectations. And so we change our clothing. We change our appearance. We change our behaviour. Sometimes we hide the things that we really like and we feign interest at all just so that other people will approve us. And then we hit uni and then we graduate and we get better and better at hiding and masking these things. But deep down, our desires and our need for approval, it never really fully goes away, does it? It sits there lurking behind the control panel of our mind, kind of like in that movie Inside Out by Pixar, right? And all of our emotional responses, they make us do these irrational things, things that we often normally wouldn't choose to do on our own, out of a desperate subconscious desire to seek approval. Uh, But sometimes we've had enough of that. We, We know that this is just dumb and we're sick of living as slaves to what other people think about us in life. And so we decide to stage a revolution Uh, we decide to take back control of our own life and we stop living for other people's approval and we start living for what we would call self-approval. You know, do I meet my own expectations? And so we set our own approval system and no one else can tell us how to live and no one else can make us feel judged. Uh, We call this individualism. And although we can never fully extract ourselves from other people's opinions of us, uh, we now set out forwards to try and live a life as much for our own achievements and to set our own goals in life. And yet so often we know uh, that we don't actually meet our own expectations. You see, even if we'd never told anyone else, we thought we may have done better in the HSC than we actually did. Or maybe we thought we would have met that special someone by now in third year university. Maybe we thought that we'd have our life together by now. And maybe we expected that we'd have more muscles or less weight. Or maybe we thought we'd have more hair (laughs) or less hair. And so even though we keep telling ourselves to love ourselves, you know, be true to yourself, just love what's within, 
we know that so often we don't meet our own expectations or even our own subjective approval. And once in a while, uh, we actually pause to think about the third category of approval. Sometimes we actually wonder if God approves of us. That maybe there's more to life than just thinking about me and what I think about myself, but maybe we think that, you know, if God looked at my life, you know, he'd kind of weigh it up and he'd kind of go, I'm okay. You know, I'm not perfect, but we'd be mates. You know, God and I would get on because, you know, I'm a fairly nice person and God seems like a nice person, so maybe we get on with it. But other times we feel that maybe we wouldn't meet his approval. That maybe God is that guy in the sky with thunderbolts hurling them down at us, just saying, you don't belong. You're not okay. Or sometimes we feel that shame and we just don't care what God thinks. Well, you know, we know he disapproves and we just don't give a fig. Uh, But this quest for approval, uh, I want to suggest, has actually become more significant uh, than in previous generations. You see, in the past, the idea of tolerance was related to approval. You see, you might be able to say something in the past like, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. You see, in the past, disapproval was allowed. In fact, it was essential to a tolerant society because other people didn't need your approval to live a happy and healthy life. What they just needed was your willingness to tolerate their different beliefs. Uh, But now, not only do we demand the right to peacefully coexist, which is a good thing, but we now argue that to peacefully coexist demands that we must all approve of each other's opinions, beliefs and actions. Uh, It says in uh, an article, beginning with Mill, however, we see arguments not simply for enduring diversity as conducive to peace or progress, but also for celebrating, approving and affirming it. Now, tolerance sometimes connotes broad-minded approval of important differences and not merely the tendency to put up with them. You see, now I have the right not only to be tolerated, but I have the right to be approved. And I have the right to feel approved in everything and anything that I choose to do. And so if you fail to approve me and to affirm me in everything that I'm doing, then you are hurting me. And you need to be called out on that. And so we end up building our lives, these strange lives, where we build our mental well-being on these fickle and shaky foundations for the need of approval. Approval from others, approval from ourselves, and maybe even approval from a higher being. And yet we know so tragically that our achievements, our actions, so often don't meet that approval. And so our sense of self-worth, our joy, it goes up and down all the time, being a slave to the expectations of others and our ability to meet them or not. Now, you think this is not true, but Facebook employs an entire design team to play on your emotional need for approval because that's how they know they can get you to stay longer on Facebook and they can then bring in more advertising dollars. Now, there's an article recently where they interviewed part of the Facebook team and Facebook doesn't just want to catalyse interactions. It wants to catalyse emotions. It wants you to have the same feelings, the same positive ones at least, that you have when you cuddle up to friends and family in person. That same feeling of approval. The company's shorthand for this is serotonin, the neurotransmitter that sparks feelings of happiness. A sticky note with the word scrawled on it is tapped on the wall of a design meeting I sit in on. 
That's our term for those little moments of delight you get on Facebook, explains Julie Zhao, a design manager. But can we ever find the approval we crave when it just seems so subjective, so shaky and so temporary? Well, today, in the third chapter of Paul's letter to Philippians, uh, Paul talks again about how he wants us to have real joy. He wants us to have those happy serotonin, warm and fuzzy feelings too, but not the short little hits that Facebook offers you. But he wants us to have a deep-seated joy, a joy that comes from having our real needs met, our real needs for approval dealt with. But he begins, though, by warning us against the danger of false paths to approval. He begins quite strongly in verse 2. He says, watch out. Be on guard against a bunch of flesh-eating, mutilating evil dogs. Now, that sounds like something like a bit of, something out of a horror movie, right? You know, these, the return of the evil flesh-mutilating dogs, part 2. <laughs> he doesn't mince his words here. It's quite offensive, but if anything, Paul... You could probably say that Paul could be accused of hate speech here, you know, calling people a bunch of evil dogs. But, you know, the thing is, Paul was actually speaking truly because these people were actually going around mutilating people's flesh. From what Paul goes on to talk about, it seems like there was a bunch of religious people, a bunch of people who may even be calling themselves Christians. And what they were going around saying is that they insisted that in order to be truly impressive to others to seek the approval of God, to seek the approval of other people, what you needed to do was to mutilate your flesh. What they were doing is they were calling for guys to be circumcised, to have the foreskins of their penises cut off as a way to earn God's approval. Now, it sounds a bit weird, but in a Jewish law, every male Israelite was supposed to be circumcised after God had cut a deal with their forefather a guy named Abraham. In Genesis chapter 17, God calls on Abraham and he says to him, Abraham, I want you to be blameless, to be pure. And in return, what God promises to Abraham is he says, if you will be blameless and pure, then I will promise to give you a child. And that child will become the father of a whole nation, the nation of Israel, which we see today. And so Abraham is called to obey God and to be blameless. And he's called to be circumcised as a symbol as a cutting away of anything that would make him impure or not blameless as God had called him to be. And so circumcision became a symbol of the way in which all of Israel was supposed to cut off anything that would cause them to disobey God. Anything that would stop them from being blameless and walking before God as he expected them to be. And so in this passage, thousands of years later, there's a bunch of people calling on Christians to be circumcised to show their obedience to God and to prove their spiritual blamelessness, telling them that they somehow don't yet meet God's approval or expectations until they do this. And Paul sternly and seriously warns them to watch out for these kind of people because not only are they trying to cut off their foreskins, they're also trying to cut off their joy. But what would Paul know? You know, isn't he just trying to water down the requirements? Is he just trying to make sure that we don't have to observe religious rituals? Is he trying to, you know, isn't trying to achieve God's approval a good thing? Aren't they trying to do something that's right and proper? Well, Paul says to them, look, he says, trust me, guys, it doesn't work, and I should know. He says in verse 4, 
If anyone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He says, in my past life, I was the man. I was the bomb. When it came to achievements in the religious world, I was the heavyweight champion and I would go toe-to-toe with anyone. I was the guy that other people wanted to be like when it came to being religious. You see, unlike those people who were pagans who then converted to Judaism later on in life, he was circumcised when he was only eight days old. Big tick, okay? He was born as a Jewish person, as one of the people of God, another big tick. And not only was he a Jew, but he was from the tribe of Benjamin, one of the favourite tribes, the most privileged tribes, double tick. And he was a Hebrew, born from Hebrew parents. He wasn't even a halfie. He was full-blood Jewish, another tick. When it came to being a Pharisee, he kept the law. Now, Pharisees were a bunch of religious, hardcore zealots. These guys were really keen to observe the law. In fact, the word Pharisee means set apart. You see, they had set themselves apart from the rest of the people of Israel by how hardcore they were willing to go to keep the law. They were in the gifted and special class in school when it came to being religious. Okay? Double tick for him. And when it came to enthusiasm for religion, well, he was so zealous, he was so hardcore, that in verse 6, he went around persecuting and killing and locking up anyone who thought differently to what he believed. Another tick. And then when it came to keeping the law, when it came to following what God had asked his people to do, as far as Paul was concerned, he was convinced that he was faultless. That just like Abraham had been called to be in Genesis chapter 17, God called on Abraham to be blameless. Paul now thinks that he's achieved what Abraham had always been called to do by living a blameless or a faultless life. And so as far as Paul was concerned, he had reached every single one of God's expectations by living out the law. And yet it didn't work. In verse 7, Paul says that whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ. Everything he had achieved, all his heritage, his ethnic pride as a Jewish person, all this hard work over many years as a religious person, doing, doing, doing things, he now considers as a loss. He now no longer values them or considers that they will help him to win and reach God's approval. And in fact, in verse 8, he now calls them garbage. And now the people who translate our Bibles, uh, they're very nice people. Uh, They want to try and, you know, not offend people as they read God's word. And so sometimes they uh, tone down some of the language in order to make it palatable. But in the original text of the Bible, in the original Greek language, the word which they translate garbage is probably more accurately translated as crap or poo. You see, as far as Paul's concerned, all of his achievements, all of those things that he had spent years in his religious community trying to live up to, all his own expectations and achievements trying to achieve what he thought would bring him God's approval, 
was a load of stinking, filthy crap. Uh, Ten years ago, I used to work in the hospital system as a junior doctor, and one of my rotations was working on the gastroenterology ward. (laughs) And for ten weeks, I spent my entire time dealing with what came out of people's bottoms. And nothing is more disgusting than dealing with people's poo all day long. Uh, Poo is not something that you just ignore. Okay, you don't just leave it in your life. You don't just kind of neatly pack it away in the corner of your room and just kind of hope no one notices, right? It is something that you have to flush away. And then even once you've flushed it away, particularly guys, you need to spray the air freshener, okay? And even then, the stench still lingers for a little bit in your nostrils, right? And that's how Paul now regards his former attempts to seek God's approval. His ethnic pride is offensive as crap. His academic credentials are as a Pharisee, they're as good as rubbish. His sincerity and zeal for religion is a pile of poo. His attempts to follow the law and earn God's approval is a big steaming pile of you-know-what. You see, when it comes to earning approval, uh, not everyone's approval is worth worrying about, is it? So often in life we think that we have to earn everyone's approval and be liked. But we don't actually live like that all the time, do we? Take, for example, Donald Trump. Whether you like him or hate him, Donald Trump doesn't actually really care about what you think about him because you're an Australian and you're not going to vote for him, either for him or against him. And so he doesn't give a stuff what you think about him or whether you approve of him because you have no say in his fate. You can't vote yes or no for Trump. But Donald Trump does care about the votes of Americans, doesn't he? because they actually do have a say as to whether he gets elected to the White House or not. And so he goes around spending all his time at the moment trying to seek the approval of the American public. And often he does that by seeking the disapproval of everyone else in the world. (laughs) As Paul sees it, in life there is only one person's approval worth caring about. There is one person in the audience of your life story whose approval you need to meet. And it's not your parents. It's not your friends. In fact, it's not even yourself. Because neither you nor anyone else in this world can actually have a say in your ultimate fate in life. Because one day, you and I, like everyone else who's ever walked the history of this earth, will die. And you will face your maker. And he alone will decide your fate. And so the only person whose opinion actually matters in life, who ultimately matters, is the approval of God. Now Paul hasn't been ignorant of this. He's known throughout his religious life that he needs God's approval. And in fact his religious CV, as he lists it off, is quite impressive. He's lived as a good religious Jew. He's done lots of stuff for God. He sought to impress God with his ethnicity, his religious obedience, his rituals, his hardcore zeal and his passion for God. And yet as he looks at it, none of it has actually any value in impressing God. Because you see, in order to reach God's approval, you need to actually meet his expectations. And God actually has very reasonable expectations of his creatures. You see, God made us. And he owns us. And just like Abraham, he also calls on us 
to walk blamelessly before him, to listen to him and to do what he actually says. And our problem as humans is as much as we try sometimes to do this, all of us fall short. We all fall so far short of God's expectations for us. It says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As much as we try, uh, it's kind of like the symbol of circumcision actually implies. We try and cut off all the bad things in our life, right? We try and cut off those bits we don't like. And then another part of evil springs up in another place of our life. And so we try and cut that off. And then another part of evil springs up in another part of our life. As much as we try and fix up the problem by just trimming the edges... For every bad bit we cut off, another bad bit emerges. We rebel against God in our actions. We despise God and we mistrust him in our hearts. We doubt his good intentions and we doubt that actually God wants what is best for us. And we worry that God is holding out on us. And so elsewhere in Romans chapter 3, God declares that there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Uh, The word righteous, it sounds very religious, doesn't it? Uh, But it just means that no one reaches God's expectations and that none of us meet his approval. None of us are declared right or being okay in his sight. And so as much as Paul tries to do religious stuff to try and make up for it, he cannot be righteous. He cannot meet God's expectations and he cannot win God's approval. And so it's all a load of crap. A big, stinky waste of his time and of our time. But, in verse 8, Paul explains how it's all useless and it's all crap compared to the unbelievable and the infinite value of knowing that Christ Jesus is my Lord. In verse 9, he says that he throws away the useless crap that he was holding on to to win God's approval and instead he gains Christ. Not having a righteousness, not having an approval that comes from keeping the law according to verse 9, but an approval that comes through faith or trust in Jesus. You see, while we are unable to meet God's expectations because of our sin, Jesus is the one person who actually did what Abraham was called to do. Jesus lived a blameless life. Jesus actually met God's expectations and as a result, he was the one person in the history of all of humanity who deserved and who earned God's approval. Jesus is the one person who does not deserve to die like the rest of us. And because he earned God's approval, God actually raised him back to life out of the grave three days later. And God then raised him to the highest place and appointed him, as we saw last week, to be king and lord over the entire universe. Jesus is the only true righteous person And so what hope do we have of ever meeting God's standards? Absolutely none. 
You have no chance of earning God's approval apart from Jesus. And you see, Paul had actually found the secret to real joy. That although his own efforts and his own achievements, they could not earn God's approval, but instead Jesus had. And in his love and in his generous kindness, Jesus chooses to actually come and embrace us and unite us, people who were once his enemies, people like you and I, so that we could share in his blessings, in his approval and in his righteousness. You see, when Jesus died and rose back to life, when he lived a perfect life, he did that for us, for you and I, so that God's approval, God's righteousness that fell on him could actually become ours. And the way that it happens, according to verse 9, is that by us being united or found in him. Paul knows that this is, in verse 9, not an approval that comes from his own efforts at keeping the law, but that this is a righteousness or an approval that is external to him. It's foreign to him. It's actually alien to him. But it truly becomes his own when Paul gains Christ and is united or found in him. Now, this might sound a bit metaphysical and strange, right? So um, let me give you an analogy to help you. Uh, When I married my wife, Jane, uh, she and I made promises to each other. And one of the promises we made was to be united uh, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And as we exchanged rings, we said the following words. With this ring, I wed you. With my body, I serve you. And all my possessions, I share with you. You see, in the Bible, uh, a marriage is a union between a man and a woman where two people actually become one. Now, they literally don't melt into each other, okay? My wife, Jane, is not a Siamese twin hiding behind me here, okay? But what it means is that actually when we become one, our fates are united together. Our futures are bound together. Where she goes, I go. If she packs up one day and decides to move for a job to another city, then I go with her. And not only are our futures tied together, but so are our riches, or lack of riches in my case. You see, Jane's riches now become mine because she's a doctor, uh, and my poverty now becomes hers. (laughs) And so any riches that she had beforehand are now truly mine. And any debts or car loans or other things like that that I had beforehand actually genuinely become hers as well. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 that human marriage is actually a symbol. It's actually a small picture of the amazing union or relationship that Jesus has with his people. Because on our own we have no righteousness. And we do not have approval from God. But when we trust in Jesus, just like a husband or a wife promises to trust their spouse in marriage, then Jesus' riches his righteousness, his approval and his perfect record become ours. And our debts, all those times in which we fail God, our punishment and the penalty that we all deserve for ignoring God truly becomes his. You cannot meet God's approval by doing it yourself, but Jesus can and he did. And by trusting in him, by having faith in him, God now extends that same approval that he gave to Jesus to those who are united to him. And so the question you need to ask today is, have you gained Christ? Or are you still holding on to those crappy achievements 
those worthless efforts to try and find approval? Are you still seeking approval from people who ultimately will not have a say in your ultimate future? Are you seeking approval from God in all those wrong and rubbishy ways? Or will you find approval from God through Jesus' death for you? Can you say like Paul does, that you've realised the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, not just as Lord of all, but as Paul says in verse 8, when he calls him my Lord. Is Jesus Christ your Lord? Have you personally put your reliance in him? Because that, according to Paul, is where you find real joy. You see, we skipped verse 1. Way back at the very start of the chapter in verse 1, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord. Find your joy in Jesus. Because all other attempts to seek approval are built on shifting foundations. Our approval rating goes up and down with people all day long. We see it with politicians, don't we? And our approval, even of ourselves, goes up and down every week. And sometimes we meet our own standards and sometimes we don't. And ultimately, none of us meet God's. And that exactly is why religion is a load of crap. Because being religious is all about what you do. And for Paul, it was all about doing the law, doing circumcision to try and impress God. And so many people in our world are trying to follow religion in order to do lots of good stuff in order to meet God's approval. And what the shocking and offensive but actually liberating message of Christianity is is that it's not about what you do that will win God's approval. It's about what Jesus has done that will give you his approval. And so if God approves of you, then nothing else can compare to that in relation to that joyful and happy reality. And so today I want to ask you, is Jesus your Lord? Can you claim, like Paul says, that Jesus Christ is my Lord? There's a few different responses that you may have to this good news. Uh, you may have come along for the first time today, a friend invited you, and you're not really sure if this is for you. you, you know, it sounds really good, but you're not quite sure if you're ready to commit. That's okay, you know, marriage, you, know, you don't just go on a first date, you actually want to test if this person is worth committing to. And so we here at the EU would love to help you with that. Uh, we have these really good copies of a biography about Jesus' life, uh, which we'd love to give you a copy, so that you can read for yourself the first-hand evidence about who Jesus is, and work out whether he's someone who you're willing to trust in. And so if that's you, I want to encourage you to grab your Connect card, that little green card that we all grabbed before. If everyone can grab their Connect cards out now. And on the back of the Connect card, you'll see there's a little box that you can tick that says, I'd like to investigate Jesus. If you'd like to find out more about that and to get a copy of this, then tick that box and also write, I'd like to read Luke. And someone from the EU will give you a copy of this so you can read and find out for yourself whether this is legit. But maybe you've been thinking about this for a while. Uh, Maybe you've been coming to public meetings or you've been thinking about Christian things for a while and you've decided that actually you need to do something about this. You know that you've been seeking approval from all the wrong places and you've recognised that God is offering you something that you can't achieve on your own. If that's you today, then I want to ask you to actually be bold and to do something about it. Uh, To call Jesus your Lord. And so if that's you, I want to encourage you to take out your Connect card and as we're all filling them in, to write in the comments box, I'd like to trust Jesus. Uh, Tick the box and we'd love to get in contact with you to talk about how you can actually find the approval that God is offering to all of us. The approval that you cannot win on your own. I encourage you, don't keep living this futile cycle of seeking approval from all the wrong places or in all the wrong ways because it will cripple you. 
Doing this will exhaust you if you keep trying to search for approval from others and it will rob you of joy. But in the good news of Christianity, God is offering you unconditional joy through Jesus. And so as we finish up our series on the book of Philippians, there's another chapter and a half we're not going to get to. That's okay, you can read them on your own. That'll be a little surprise for you. But I want to show you that how to have real joy has actually been all throughout this last three weeks. Paul has showed us in Philippians how to find real joy. In chapter 1, he finds joy in seeing the good news of Jesus reaching more and more people and seeing Jesus proclaimed. In chapter 2, he finds joy in people putting other people before themselves. And in chapter 3, we see that Paul finds joy in losing all of his achievements and by putting his own efforts and himself behind him, by putting himself last. And so here's a little handy acronym that someone once taught me when I was a little kid many years ago. Joy means putting Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. And in many ways, I think that's actually the message of Philippians chapters 1 to 3. And this is such a radical or different way of viewing things uh, that Paul wants to tell us over and over again that this is where you can find the reality of life. And so I want to end our series, uh, three-week series, by encouraging you to find true joy in life. Don't miss out on joy. Don't settle for second best. Uh, because I'll end with a quote from C.S. Lewis, because he says that all of us are so content with something much less than true joy. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I want to ask you, are you too easily pleased?